We are living in a time where discipleship is having a resurgence. Regrettably, however, many of the people who are teaching on discipleship today are ignorant of the discipleship movement that swept through North America in the mid-1970s. Consequently, many of the mistakes that were being made in that movement are being repeated today. And I'm gonna make a statement that I hope you'll remember. Countless Christians today are trying to give away tickets to a place they've never been. I'm gonna run that by again. Countless Christians today are trying to give away tickets to a place they've never been. If you were to survey the average Christian in their 20s and 30s, and you were to talk to them about making disciples, they would get very jazzed about that. But if you would ask them, what really is a disciple of Jesus Christ, you'd get a variety of different answers. And I believe that many of those answers fall short. Consequently, what I want to talk about this morning, I have one point to make, just one. But it's going to take me a little time to get to it. So I want you to hang with me. And it's one point about discipleship. Someone asked me what I'm going to be speaking on today, and I said, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to be speaking on, but I'll tell you about the structure of the message. Since this is a music festival, I'll use an image derived from music. You familiar with the song, Stairway to Heaven? Yeah. Okay, this message is going to be structured like the Stairway to Heaven, just without the backward masking. <laughs> In other words, it's going to begin slow, and it's going to build and build and build until the high fever pitch end in which I will tell you what my point is. So, I'm going to read a passage of scripture very quickly. If you have a Bible, either a handheld one or on your smartphone or tablet, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now, I'm going to be reading from, I believe it's the New American Standard. Uh, and I am going to change the perspective slightly so that you will hear Jesus Christ himself speak through these words. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at it or hear it from a different mountain and change the perspective slightly. Colossians 1 verse 15. I am the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16. For in me all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through me and for me. Verse 17, I am before all things, and in me all things hold together. And I am the head of the body of the church. I am the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything I might have the supremacy, the preeminence, the first place. Verse 19, For God the Father was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in me, and through me to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through my blood shed on the cross. 
Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now my Father has reconciled you by my physical body and through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. In verse 25, I'm going to read it just as Paul wrote it. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I, Paul, might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been made manifest to his saints. Verse 27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And now if you would turn to chapter 3, just one verse, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And notice the words, Christ, our life. The Colossian Christians had something happen to them that is very common to God's people, very common to us, and that is they lost sight of who Jesus Christ really was. They accepted Him as their Savior. They received Him as their Lord. But that sort of wore out. And they began to pursue other things. Even religious and spiritual things. Things beyond Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does in this chapter is he pulls back the curtain. And he gives the Colossian Christians a look. A glimpse. A sighting of Jesus Christ that is absolutely incredible. And what I want to do this morning is turn this passage into a story. And my hope is that you will see Jesus in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, perhaps like never before. The story begins in eternity past, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit conceived a purpose. Paul calls it the eternal purpose in Ephesians. And we can spend months unfolding the eternal purpose of God because it is staggering and it is inexhaustible. But I will summarize it. And it will not do justice, but God desired that he would impart his life, his own life, his divine life, into a creature that was not yet created. And that creature would share his life and make it visible. So God begins to create with this purpose in mind. And he creates the invisible realm and then he creates the visible realm. And he creates all things by his Son. He creates all things through his Son. And he creates all things for his Son. All things were created by, through, and for Jesus Christ. And consequently, all things in the visible creation have the imprint of the Son of God on them. The water is a picture of Christ. The sky is a picture of Christ. The sun 
is a picture of Christ. The land is a picture of Christ and all life forms. He takes this purpose that he's had in his heart from the beginning. He shrouds it in a mystery and he hides it in the sun. And so he creates and in the visible creation he makes a garden and in the center of the garden he creates a special tree. And this tree is throbbing and pulsating It's no ordinary tree. It's throbbing and pulsating with life. It is the container of divine life. God has put His own life into this tree. It is the tree of life. And He has invited the apex of His creation, human beings, to come to that tree and to partake of that tree so that what was in the tree, the life of God, would go into them and they would be fruitful and multiply and bear the image of the invisible God in the earth. But tragedy struck. And God who created all things saw his good creation morph into an enemy, even his own enemy. And so the Lord does something to recover it, to restore it. He chooses a man, his name is Abraham, and from that man comes forth a nation. The nation of Israel was designed to bring things back to the way they were supposed to be. To restore God's intention. But Israel failed. So God did the unthinkable. He penetrated his own creation, which had fallen. He had penetrated his own creation through the passageway of the womb of a young girl in Bethlehem and he entered into the creation that he himself created. And the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was born in Bethlehem in conditions that no king or creator would ever think to be born amid the stench and the stain of animal waste. And he grew up in what was considered to be the armpit of Galilee, the ill-starred town of Nazareth. And they even rejected him. He became a craftsman, a carpenter, a blue-collar worker. If you're a blue-collar worker in this room, Jesus can identify with you because most of his adult life was spent in a carpenter's shop. He was an artisan. He worked with wood and stone. He sweat. He had sawdust in his hair. He had splinters in his hands. He worked as a day laborer. But I ask the question now, and we need to explore it. Who was this carpenter? Who was this artisan? Who was he really? Well, Colossians tells us that this man, Jesus, was the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. The Father said, my greatest pleasure is to take all of my power, all of my majesty, all of my riches, all of who I am as God and drain it into my Son. And so Paul says that it pleased the Father that all fullness would dwell in Jesus Christ. And consequently, if we were transported back into the first century and we saw this 30-year-old man, Jesus, walking in Galilee and we just stretched our hand and touched his arm, we would be touching eternity. Because within that human vessel was the eternal God that has no beginning. And that created everything that we see. But that's not all. 
He was the new Adam. Scripture calls him the second man, the last Adam, the second Adam. You see, Adam was the image of God, remember? And Paul says that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the human face of God. We have a lot of people in our day, even Christians, who say, well, what is God like? And they philosophize and they pontificate and they imagine, well, we know what God is like. Jesus is the human face of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus of Nazareth. Read the Gospels and you will see God operating on this planet and how He reacts and what He does and how He thinks and what He says. (laughs) What is God like? Watch Him at a wedding in Cana. Now in that day, when you were married, the bridegroom was responsible for the food the wine on all the social settings and in this wedding the wine ran out now this is the bridegroom's biggest day and this is a monumental social disgrace and blunder I mean we're talking shameful in that culture and what he does our Lord is he turns water into wine but not just any ordinary wine, it's better than the original batch. And he ends up making the bridegroom, who just made an epic failure, he ends up making him look like a hero. Because when they tasted the wine, they couldn't believe that he saved the best wine for last. Jesus Christ, on that day, saints, removed the bridegroom's shame. He reversed his failure. He removed the disgrace. And he ended up making him look like a hero. That's what your God looks like. Watch him when he's at a well sitting there in the hot blistering sun. And a Samaritan woman comes by drawing water. She's been divorced multiple times. And she's living in sin. And your Lord breaks all social conventions of the day. It was a disgrace and a shame for a man to speak to a woman in public, and yet he does it. Not only that, but it was a disgrace and a scandal for a Jewish man to be speaking to a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman, and he does it. And he ends up telling this woman, this multi-divorcee, living in sin, some of the greatest things he's ever told any mortal about God the Father. And he ends up going to her town and eating her food using their utensils in Samaria, something that no good Jew would do, let alone a religious Jew. People are more important to him than custom and tradition. That's what your God looks like. And then there's my favorite. He is sitting before a woman who has just been caught in the act of adultery. She has been dragged like a rag doll by a mob of bloodthirsty men. She's scantily clothed. Her hair is a mess. She has blood on her because she's been dragged. She's crying. She's weeping. And through the tears, she has her head down. And all she can see are the sandals of the men who are holding stones, getting ready to send her to her death, justifiably. And the Lord Jesus is there. God in flesh, writing in the sand, and then he 
straightens up and he says, the person who's committed no sin, you throw the first stone at her head. And suddenly the rocks that are in these men's hands begin to get very heavy. And she still has her head down and now she starts hearing the sound of rocks dropping to the ground one after the other. She squints again, dares to open her eyes and now she sees the sandals disappearing one by one until there's none left. And then the Lord Jesus says, Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what God looks like. Praise His name. But that's not my point. He's not only the new Adam bearing the image of God. He's not only the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He's also the new Israel. Where Israel failed, Jesus Christ, your Lord, succeeded. You see, Matthew tells us that as a child, Jesus left Egypt. And Matthew quotes the Hebrew prophet Hosea and he says out of Egypt have I called my son and Matthew's talking about Jesus but Hosea was talking about Israel out of Egypt have I called my son Jesus is the new Israel Jesus Christ when he began his ministry you know the story he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years it's not a coincidence he's reliving the story of Israel then he calls how many men? 12 to be his emissaries his missionaries his disciples to carry on his work how many tribes of Israel were there? 12 he's reconstituting a new Israel that would show the world what God is like and then he shows up at a well at noon and meets a woman that I just introduced you to. He's the seventh man in her life. Seven's the number of perfection. She's half Jew, half Gentile. That's what a Samaritan was. She is a picture of the body of Christ because Jacob met his wife at a well at noon. He is the new Israel replaying the life and story of Israel, bringing it to its climax. But that's not all. He's not only the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, the embodiment of eternity and the eternal God. He's not only the new Adam bearing the image of God, He's not only the new Israel, but he is the one who reconciles a fallen earth, a fallen cosmos, a fallen universe to himself. And how did he do it? By a wooden stake on a hill outside of Jerusalem where blood, the blood of the Holy Son of God was shed. Sisters and brothers, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the enormity of it, is far more than we can comprehend and it's been lost to us. And I want to try to tell you a little bit about what he did there. He suffered the most gruesome death that a mortal can know. But what was happening in the mind of God and in eternal realms and in the spiritual realm and how it benefits you and me is remarkable.
on that cross, He took every sin, every transgression that you and I would ever commit. Past, present, future. He took it to His cross. On that cross, He took your flesh and my flesh. The old Adam, the old man, the old self. He took it on that cross. On that cross, He took the world system which is in rebellion against God and seeks to pull away the children of God into its clutches. He took it there, the world system on His cross. On that cross, He took the very power of Satan Himself. On that cross, He took the old creation which had fallen and become corrupt. On that cross, He took the condemnation of the law which accuses you and me day and night and gives us a guilty conscience. Saints, He took all those things on the cross and He crucified them once and for all. Amen. Amen. And that's not all. He became sin personified, which turned the head of a holy father who could not look upon his son because he embodied sin that day. The righteous one became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. And then he did something else. He faced his greatest enemy on that cross. The greatest enemy of God is not sin. The greatest enemy of God is not even Satan. The greatest enemy of God, the arch enemy of God, the last enemy is death. And I will tell you this, death, the child of sin, darkened the wood of that cross and took the Holy Son of God, this ill-starred Nazarene, this carpenter, this artisan, this craftsman, death took him. And pulled Jesus into his domain and was victorious. And Satan and the demons smiled and laughed with glee for they had finally overcome the anointed one. Until three days later the father got involved. And he stepped in. And what God the Father did on that Sunday morning, saints, is beyond the comprehension of mortals, but He drew together all of the powers of the universe, all of the power of the heavens, His own power, His own uncreated life, and He concentrated it in one place and drew it, bringing it straight to that tomb. And there was a battle, the battle of the ages between death and and divine life and they fought and they struggled and the heavens shook and the earth shook and the angels hid their eyes and the body of Jesus of Nazareth quivered and he opened his eyes and he came to life and that day death did die for he not only crucified Satan's power and sin and the world system and the old creation and your sins and the law, he crucified death, taking away its sting.
And now, saints, Christians, we who are in Christ, we don't die, we sleep. This is the language of the New Testament. I'm not building a theology here, it's just the language of the New Testament. Those that sleep in Christ. He destroyed death. And not only that, when He came out of the grave, He showed up in a garden. Remember Mary saw Him? Thought He was the gardener? And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, He, the resurrected Christ, became a life-giving Spirit. And He breathed His own life, the divine, uncreated, eternal life of God, into His disciples and sisters and brothers. The tree of life was back on the earth again in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And when He breathed His life into the disciples, the only begotten Son became that day the firstborn, the firstborn Son of many brethren and many sisters who became the sons and daughters of God. The only begotten Son became the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He became the firstborn from the dead. But that's not my point. Out of the womb of His death, there emerged a new creation. There came forth a new race. There came forth a new kingdom where there is no Jew or Gentile, where there is no rich or poor or servant or slave, where there is no black or white, where there is no Hispanic or Asian, where there is no male or female, a new creation where all social distinctions have been erased and where Christ is all and all the very body of Jesus, the very bride of the Lamb. The ecclesia of God. Bone of His bone and kin to divinity. A beautiful, beautiful thing. Something that was in Him from before creation. For you and I have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Well, that day she came forth. By the way, you're part of her. You're part of that body. You're part of that new race. You're part of that new creation. And as wonderful as that is, that's not really my point. That's not what I came here to share with you. I'm building up to it. Let's fast forward to the end of time. Saints, several years back, someone wrote a book called It's Your Time. Bestseller. Well, there's going to come a day where it's going to be His time. And the one who was bludgeoned, spat upon rejected, despised, mocked, tortured, and crucified is going to have His day on this planet. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the new Adam, the new Israel, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of the Godhead is going to split the skies and He is going to return to this earth. And this earth shall receive her rightful King. And every tongue will confess on that day that this ill-starred artisan and craftsman, that this man from Nazareth 
is in fact this earth's true Lord. And every knee will bow. And we have that great scene in the book of Revelation where every tribe, kindred, tongue, and race will come together as a matchless throng and await the new heavens and the new earth and something incomprehensible will happen on that day, brothers and sisters. This throng will take shape and it will become a whirlwind. And out of blazing light, there will step out the most glorious woman that the earth has ever seen. The bride of Christ will make her appearance. The bride of the Lamb. And light will be poured into light and gold will be poured into gold and Jesus Christ, the lone bachelor from eternity past, will finally get married. And he and his bride will become one and she will become, and I'm using the words of Revelation in the last few chapters, the wife of the Lamb. Behold, I show you a mystery. The man was created... And out of the man's side came a woman. And the two fell in love with each other, and the two became one. For Adam was put into deep sleep, and out of his side came forth a girl. And the girl and the boy became one. But I'm not speaking of Adam and Eve. I'm speaking of Christ and the church. For the real Adam was put into a deep sleep, the deepest sleep of all, death. And his side was pierced on that cross. And that side drew out water and blood. And then on the third day, that side became the womb of those who are in Christ from the foundation of the world Ephesians 1 and they are the real Eve the bride of Christ and saints whether you realize it or not you are part of her and I just quoted Ephesians 5 don't take my word for it go back and read it when you get home I'm not making this up this is the real Adam and the real Eve and you can find it in Revelation 21 and 22 And Jesus Christ will take the kingdom after He is ruling and reigning and will hand it back to God the Father and God will become all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's not my point. This Christ that I have just described to you, this Christ through whom all things were created, by whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. In Colossians 1, there is a text in that passage I read to you. In the Greek, it actually says that all creation was created in Him. C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read the book Mere Christianity, and if you have it, you should, he gives an illustration. He says... Consider a white piece of paper and a horizontal line that goes across it. The paper is God. The horizontal line is time. Time is in God. Creation is in Christ. That means that He is at the beginning of time. 
He's at the middle of time and he's at the end of time all at the same moment. That's why Revelation says he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's not that he's the Alpha first and then sometime later he's the Omega. No, he's the Alpha and Omega at the same moment. Your past, your present, what's present to us, what's past to us is in God's now. He's at the beginning, he's at the end, he's in the middle, all at the same moment. He envelops time. Saints, that means that everything I've just shared with you has already happened. Where is that in the Bible, Frank? Well, it's in Colossians 1. All creation is in him, but it's also in Hebrews 4. We have that mysterious passage. He finished all things before he began all things. And in Revelation 13, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And in Romans 8, Paul is talking to the Roman Christians in the first century. And he says, they whom he foreknew, he predestined. And they, meaning you, who he predestined, he called. And they who he called... He justified, and they who He justified, He, past tense, glorified. Well, you're not glorified yet, neither am I. But in the mind of God, and in reality, we have been. It just hasn't caught up to us yet. Because we're caught in time. Saints, it's already happened. From God's perspective, and that gives us great assurance. Great, great security. Great guarantee. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Time is in him. What a great Christ. He's more than Lord and Savior. He's far more. But that's not my point. Sisters and brothers, may the Holy Spirit open our eyes that we may see that this Christ, who created the visible universe... This Christ, for whom all things were created, that He might have the preeminence, the supremacy, the first place in all things. This Christ, who penetrated this fallen planet and became human, and lived perfectly for 30 plus years, and was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. This Christ, who willingly went to the cross and died the most gruesome death, and crucified every negative thing and all the effects of the fall on that cross. This Christ, who rose again on the third day and defeated death itself. This Christ, who ascended into heaven and took the highest place and name above every name. This Christ, who is now our great high priest, our chief shepherd, our great intercessor. This Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the builder of the ecclesia, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who is Lord of the world. This Christ, who will one day return and take the bride that he so passionately loves into himself. This Christ, this glorious Christ, who is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. This eternal, infinite, perfect, incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, enthroned, glorified, victorious, triumphant, matchless, incomprehensible, incomparable Christ. 
lives in you. Praise the Lord. But that's not my point. Christ in you, the hope of glory, and this is the mystery of the ages. This is why He created in the beginning to share His life with you so that you might make it visible. But here's my point. After Paul pulls that curtain back and shows us the stunning vision of Jesus Christ and how great and how glorious and how incredible He is, he says in chapter 3, Christ, our life. Not only does Jesus Christ, this Christ that I have presented to you, the Christ of Colossians 1, not only does He dwell in you in all of His fullness, but He has given you the right, the privilege, the honor to live by His life. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 2, It is not I, but Christ lives in and through me. That's why Paul said in Philippians, To live is Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 6, As the Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, He And she who consumes me, who partakes of me, shall live by me. Sisters and brothers, the Lord Jesus Christ, all that He is, all of what He is, dwells in you. That is amazing, that is incomprehensible, that is unspeakable in its glory. But not only that, you have been called to live by His life. So that it is not you... It is Christ in you and through you. And that is the Christian life. And that is what God created for. And that's what the tree of life meant from the beginning. Adam and Eve, partake of this tree and live by me. What's a disciple? A disciple is a person who's learning how to live by the indwelling life of Christ. And what's making disciples? It's teaching others how to live by the indwelling life of Christ and making that life visible. And any understanding or any experience of discipleship that's less than that is not biblical discipleship. And you can't pass on what you yourself have not experienced. So I end this message with this one exhortation. Go find out what it means to live by the indwelling life of Jesus Christ.